Hello. I feel like you're all in 3D. Um, so I'm so happy that you're all joining us for this IRL panel on human connection. Um, we are very passionate about this. As you will see, my name is Jonathan from Any Road. We have Didi from Meow Wolf Hello. and Vivek from Eventbrite here. So uh, before we start, this is, the, this is very important. Uh, can everyone please stand up? Uh, put on your special glasses. You look great. You all look great. It's a good-looking crowd. It's body time. Good-looking, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Rainbows everywhere. Put on your glasses. You get to keep these. It's a souvenir. And then, uh, yeah. 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 We won't collect them. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with a little exercise. So everyone, please put your right arm, right hand in the air. Okay, now put it down. Now please put your left hand in the air. Down. Right hand in the air. Left hand in the air. Right hand in the air. Left hand in the air. Right hand in the air. Left hand in the air. Right hand in the air. All right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Please have a thank seat. Thank you. So, what did they just do? What did you just do? I what think you, I think they all danced together. You all danced Group together. Dance. So you all basically built a little bit of a social tie together. You're all bonded now. And there's greater mental well-being in this room because of your synchronicity. So thank you. You also just got into your bodies because these scratchy things on your nose allowed for you to remember that you have a body, which will help enhance your learning capabilities. You'll collect and accept information. So here we go. There's, there are a lot of studies out there that sharing these experiences together brings us closer together, allows us to empathize more with each other. And frankly, there's a reason that clubs and raves are so popular. There's actually a real study. It's the four Ds. Dance, drums, <laughs> Music deprivation, sleep deprivation, and drugs. So, or some combination. Or some combination <laughs> of this. Not advocating anything. Uh, but on the other hand, when you actually have people together with the four Ds or any combination thereof, you, uh, you connect more. So we are going to have an amazing panel uh, today all about the power of experiences. Um, we're coming from very different backgrounds, and our organizations are very different, but we are all very passionate about the experience economy going forward, which is why this is not on Zoom. <laughs> this is Yay IRL. And you yes. showed up, IRL, yes. and you're all so, besties now, so this is great. Let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> Are you not wearing yours? The whole I, I'm changing the glasses so I can actually <laughs> see people. You all can. Please feel free. So uh, let's, let's start by, uh, I'd love uh, to introduce ourselves, uh, a little bit about our organizations, and um, kind of how we got into the whole experiential game. So uh, Didi, if you want to start. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Didi Bitharam, uh, Chief Communications Officer at Meow Wolf. Uh, Meow Wolf creates large-scale psychedelic art wonderlands. We have three permanent exhibitions in Santa Fe, Denver, and Las Vegas, and we are opening our fourth here in Texas later this summer. Um, we create worlds where you have your own agency. We don't have maps, so you go and explore. They all start in an accessible location, like a house or a supermarket. And then there are portals to unknown worlds within. So, yeah, we've been, uh, we opened in 2016, the first one, and looking to create a lot more in the coming years. Great. Thanks for that, Didi. Uh, my name is Vivek Sagi. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Eventbrite, a public global ticketing company. Uh, in addition to being one of the largest platforms, we also offer a two-sided marketplace to allow creators and the attendees for events to come together. So uh, our mission is to connect the world through live experiences. Kind of we do that in over 180 countries. And essentially what we offer is we offer entrepreneurs an opportunity to create, share, discover, and attend live experiences that kind of enrich their lives and allows them to follow their passions. So excited to be here and doing it in real life. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I got my start at a little company nobody's ever heard of called Red Bull. Uh, I was one of the first uh, marketing hires in the States. We ran uh, experiences, spent about a billion dollars a year on experiential marketing uh, to connect people together. TLDR, it worked. Red Bull has by far number one market share, but it drove me crazy. We had no data. 
So I started my company, AnyRoad, to work with large brands that are organizing experiences, wanted to use that to build community and uh, connect deeper with their audience, and had no idea what was working. So we are all coming into the experience world from very different places. Um, on the, on uh, Vivek's side, Eventbrite has how many creators now? Uh, about 798,000. A lot. Of people, uh, raise your hand if you've uh, if you've st- created an event on Eventbrite. Wow! Oh my you. goodness. Um, Didi, on the other hand, uh, has three locations currently. About to open their fourth in Dallas, which I'm really excited for. Raise your hand if you've been to Meow Wolf. Oh my nice. god! Wow, that's nice. pretty good. Um, but I under- if I understand correctly, your team builds this all in con- from conception to execution all in-house, right? That's right. Yeah, we have about 150 full-time artists on staff. And then with every location that we go to, we try and hire local artists there. So it becomes a community, you know, collaboration. Um, but yeah, we're, we're about 1,100 people today. Amazing, amazing. So I guess the question that I want us all to start with is, what makes an amazing experience, right? I think we all agree experiences are core to human connection, which is why we titled this panel the way we did. Um, but what makes an amazing experience, and how, how, do we, uh, how do we think about actually the curation and crafting of these experiences? Did you want to take that? Or? Okay, so I think you'll see each of our individual answers are going to be different too. I think the first thing for me that makes an experience unique is an element of surprise, Right. Like you go in, you've got expectations that are either blown away or they're different, and you kind of are hooked. I think the second thing is most great experiences are very immersive. Independent of the format that you see them in, you kind of get sucked in, and uh, you just realize you're having a great time. I think the third most important thing is that most great experiences are shared, Mm -hmm. either with friends, family, a new set of community that you kind of interact with and grow relationships with. So I think those are the three key elements of what we see makes for a great experience across all of the 5 million plus events that we had on our platform last year. Yeah, I totally agree with the shared. So Meow Wolf, you know, we're trying to create these experiences that really provoke wonder and that awe-inspiring feeling, which there's, you know, studies that show that if you are able to kind of let those social constructs dissolve when you're in that awe you know, state, um, you're really able to kind of be open to the unknown, which is healthy, right? We want to like approach the unknown as something that is not a panic stricken place, right? We want to be able to, to kind of keep that curiosity. So doing that with other people, um, you know, knowing that someone is sharing that same kind of sense of where are we, this is the unknown we're exploring together really creates that bond and, and makes for a good experience. In, in the what beginning, what? I was just saying, what about any road? I mean, for, for us, it's all about behavioral change, yeah. right? So, again, I think that's the kind of the same, the similar concept that's across our three organizations is we're looking at change, right? We want to see people who maybe love a brand. Uh, you love the North Face. The North Face does tons of rock climbing experiences, but they don't do this just to make money. They do this to build community. So you go to the North Face and you go to their rock climbing experiences and you spend time with them and you meet other people who are rock climbing. And ultimately, this should engage you more. Uh, ideally, you'll probably spend more money at the North Face, uh, but also you'll feel more engaged and more loyal to them. Um, and so everything we do, whether we're working with the Kentucky Bourbon Trail or the North Face or uh, the World Economic Forum or still Austin Distillery here in Austin, we really want to understand how, is, how are these experiences changing people's perception and bringing people closer together. Um, I guess on the same note, when, when I was at, we were talking about this this morning, when I was at Red Bull, we had this this really stupid concept of counting smiles, right? And people would be like, hey, we just did this amazing event. 50,000 people came. We gave out 70,000 Red Bulls. Was it good? And people were like, people seem to be smiling. So, yeah. <laughs> so, we, are, we all run, you know, we'll, we'll get into a little bit in technology and how we use technology in a moment. But, like, how do we know if experiences are good? How do we measure emotion? Didi? Measuring emotion, super fun concept. Uh, I'd like to say it's very data-driven, but it's not. I mean, we look at our reviews. Reviews are always a great KPI to take a look at. Um, But, you know, I think because the Meow Wolf experiences are kind of 
non-linear and on your own accord, we get a lot of one-star reviews that say, I don't get it, or I'm not sure I saw everything, um, which actually is by design. <laughs> and, you know, kind of helps for people to start processing, like, what is that space between being done and, and seeing everything? And um, I think, uh, you know, we can, we can we can look at those types of KPIs to ensure that people are mostly having a good time or an NPS score or things like that. Um, but really that in return on experience is something that's quite anecdotal and something that we have to look at a little bit deeper. Yeah, what yeah about I think you? you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's harder to measure compared to some other industries like I think e-commerce, et cetera. But uh, I think at a very macro level, you know that folks are having a good experience when the entrepreneurs that organize those events are successful. Right, They're growing businesses that are scaling, they're building communities that are successful and kind of very local or kind of hyper-local. So at a macro level, I think the success of the entrepreneur who's hosting that event is the best indicator. I think like Didi said, uh, you know, reviews and ratings, crowdsourced content is a big valuable trope of information about what's a good experience, who's a good creator, uh, and th that's kind of uh, really good. There are other tools that we use, like on the Eventbrite platform, we have this notion of follow, which is when a consumer or an attendee like you and me discovers a creator where they had a great time at an event, they kind of end up following that creator. And what we've seen is it's a very strong signal uh, about the long-term potential of that creator's ability to be innovative and hold great experiential uh, events. The other thing that we have seen is also that uh, because you have a large millions of attendees that use a platform, in more than 180 countries, you will see that not there are multiple segments that show up within that, right? So, I mean, I, for example, I'm a little bit of a warrior. I kind of look at events, but I'm not the one that's going to get my friends together, organize a trip down to go look at a local event on a weekend. But what we see is some of our consumers who buy tickets, they're typically buying it for a lot of their friends. So they're influencers, not just social influencers, but they're kind of in real life influencers. And when they find a particular category, and we have thousands of categories, but if they find a particular category or a new kind of an event format in real life that works, we quickly see how they connect and how kind of they light up and they bring in thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of more attendees into new kinds of events. So I think that influencer community is great at giving us signal on what's working, what's not working. But then there's tons of data, I think. If you think about what's going on with artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of what algorithms can detect from data, we see that at scale on our platform. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to do is predict and help creators who might be hosting their first event by telling them, hey, this is what you should think about. This is the kind of titles, descriptions, images that you need to put together. If you're thinking about a particular format, what if you tweaked it a little differently, right? Trying to be their best friends and making them successful. Yeah, I think all three of us actually kind of work in these creator economies. Um, you know, Meow Wolf also for successful metrics for us are that, you know, our business is actually fueling more artists and, and we're able to employ more artists and create more art. And I think same with, with Any Road here where you're actually able to create more experiences to those creators and same with your creator tool. Jonathan, how are you measuring smiles? <laughs> Uh, we just count one, two. Uh, That's a cool job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we we actually when we got into it because we're all we're data scientists, right? And we got super frustrated because a lot of the work, you know, there's net promoter score, right, and reviews that a lot of people use, but we didn't we realized that there weren't the kind of metrics that are common out there to be able to count smiles and and scale this. Um, so we actually had to come up with a lot of our own. Uh, one that we really love is called brand conversion. Right. And it, the whole idea is when I, you know, work with an organization like, I don't know, uh, Maker's Mark, whisk, Maker's Mark Bourbon. Right. They're not trying to just like make a bunch of money off of their tours and tastings. And you can go and you can actually dip if you've had Maker's Mark. It's covered with red wax at the top. You can go and you can dip your own bottle in the wax. And it's like that's that, that like builds love. Right. It builds a lot of loyalty. And they're not just trying to make money on this. They actually want people to think about Maker's Mark every time that they see this bottle. And you went with your friends on a bachelorette party, and it was so much fun. And every time you go to a bar from then on for the rest of your life, you'll drink Maker's Mark. So the question is how to use experiences to actually change people's perceptions and love for the brand. And so we actually came up with some ways to measure that, um, which is really just about pre and post, right? You come in, you are a certain person, uh, 
and you have certain things that you love and certain brand affinities, something happens to you and you participate in this incredible immersive experience and you come out changed, right? And if we can actually look at that change both from what you think, how you feel, uh, both from microsurveys, but also passive data, uh, and also spend, we can start to paint a big picture of just how powerful these experiences are. You basically just said experiences create love. Experiences do create love. <laughs> uh, the, the, the hard part, right, which I think is at the crux of this, is love is hard to measure, right? And you can't optimize it if you can't measure it, right? So it's... Uh, I mean, in Meowulf's case, uh, if you can share, I, I imagine there are a lot of people that have been to multiple Meowulfs, right? And uh, and to me, that, I don't know, I'm, I'm just hypothesizing here. That seems to be, if somebody starts to go to multiple Meowulfs, that becomes a destination, and that re is probably a really good indication of, like, deep love. That is very, very true, yes. And, and you know, we're starting to kind of figure out ways to sort of connect all the worlds together and, and really figure out how to, you know, increase this loyalty of our fans because there's so much to explore that sometimes one time is not enough. Um, but I think another metric that we're really interested in in kind of figuring out how much love really is created is sort of this return on experience metric, which I know we've, we've all spoken about a little bit. I don't know exactly what that means. I think oh, there's a lot of definitions of return on experience, but what it means for me is that you actually came away and did something different because of your experience. And so how could you measure, you know, I don't, we get kids all the time that send us drawings and, and songs and, and paintings that they've made because of their experience. And so you think about, you know, 2.7 million people went through Meowulfs last year. Were there 2.7 million pictures maybe that were made or little things that were were changed and like how does that you know end up in this collective love or this you know greater impact for social good because of an experience i would love to i would love to learn how to measure that <laughs> i think the one thing i'll add to that is um it's important to measure the return on experience as long as we see data that there are enough people that want to attend a live experience i think we're seeing that demand on our platform right i think we did a winter study that we published last year late last year and what we found is about 54% of the American population would prefer tickets to an event over a gift or something that you bought from an e-commerce store. So the demand is for sure there. I think the before and after that Jonathan mentioned is a way where we can quantify it at scale and at least show there's an immediate bump that you get out of it, but then for brands, especially a long-term sustained bump, if you can measure that, that'll be great. Um, yeah, I mean, what we see, I actually cite that statistic all the time, um, is that millennials are spending way more on experiences than on things. Uh, and I think that that is continuing. We also see retail brands that are literally shutting down every single week, right? Because why the fuck do you ever need to walk into a store again when you can just buy everything on your phone, right? <laughs> why are you going to wait in a line and, you know, and walk into a store? Um, and what's really interesting is folks like what we're seeing and also Meow Wolf is seeing uh, and Eventbrite is that a lot of this, you know, let, let's say all stores disappear. Well, we're going to have a lot of empty space, right? And I believe, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I'm sure you have some strong thoughts, is that a lot of this space becomes experiential space. Um, you know, Meow Wolf on every corner. Is that what we're going to say? That sounds great, actually. Uh, we are going to experiment with this. For the Dallas location is going to be at the Grapevine Mills Mall in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So we are actually taking over an old Bed Bath and Beyond to become a Beyond, Beyond, and Beyond. Yeah, thanks. We're excited about it. And actually, this this mall's been doing it for a while. All the big box stores are slowly turning into you know Legolands and aquariums and Peppa Pig World of Plays. I haven't been, um, but you know it it is kind of inviting back folks to come and do these experiences with with other people. And and I love it because I you know grew up going to the mall, not spending money and only hanging out at malls for the experience. But Orange Julius, Orange Julius is hot topic. Um, but now you know we're actually bringing back for a collective experience, and um, it's going to be interesting. We look forward to seeing how it's going to go. But. Vivek. You, you're on compared to the two of us, have such a wide uh, range of experiences, um, and I know that I know people who have used uh, Eventbrite to organize in a, like a dance party on their rooftop, uh, but also you power concerts at clubs and stuff like that. Like, do you see any trends in that space in terms of like where these experiences are happening and where people are choosing to 
Yeah, that's a great question. We are for sure. I think what we're seeing is a lot of spaces that you wouldn't have traditionally thought about as being an event space is being repurposed as one. Right, office spaces in a large, a lot of expensive downtown locations. We're starting to see folks getting creative about that. The second is, as the size of events kind of goes from really small, cozy, personalized to kind of large scale, we're also seeing the kind of what I would say subdivision of uh, event space. Right. So an entrepreneur comes and says, hey, there's a new office space on weekends and on evenings, I'm going to take it over, and I'm going to enable 10 creators or 15 creators to kind of time slice that and have their events. So I think the shape of uh, space is going to look very different. The What's happened because of the what we don't want to talk about much, but which is all the pandemic-driven remote work, actually is, I think, positively impacting the availability of space for in-real-life experiences. Because the price points are coming down, folks are getting more creative, we're just starting to see an explosion of formats too. And the other interesting thing is what we're seeing is the space is actually sometimes driving the kind of event that they're putting together. It's also informing the event format a little bit. We're, we're seeing the same thing across retail. Uh, as, as retailers start to have more and more commerce online, right? Nike is like 50% of their commerce online now. Um, they have all these empty stores. Right. And so we see Michael's art stores start to do art classes in all their locations, Sir Latop cooking classes, Nike, their running club and basketball camps. We see really every retailer. I mean, you see a Peloton store. No one walks into a Peloton store to buy a Peloton. You're going to walk out with a fucking Peloton. Right. But you go in to experience the Peloton, to try it out with the hope that you'll buy it later on. Right. So this antiquated uh, metrics like like revenue per square foot is just out the door. It's a matter of having the experience, building that loyalty, and then you can buy a pair of shoes on your phone later on. Um, going a little bit deeper here, um, there are a lot of uh, differences in how people of different generations experience the same things. So if my mom and I go to Meow Wolf together, uh, it's probably never going to happen. But if it did, uh, we would probably have very different experiences and gravitate toward different pieces of that. So, you know, all, th- all three of us are, you know, trying to build experiential programs that are ageless. But how do we, how do we see different generations actually experiencing things differently now? Yeah, I think this has actually gotten changed dramatically with pre-pandemic and post-pandemic too, right? So um, what we're seeing is that Gen Z is definitely facing kind of treasures of social isolation and loneliness a lot more than other generations. I think there was a 2020 Cigna study that showed that about 79% of uh, Gen Z were already reporting pre-pandemic. I think the study came out in maybe sometime in 2020. We're already saying, hey, we just feel socially disconnected or isolated and lonely. And I think the pandemic, if anything, has just made that worse. So from our studies, our winter studies that we published, what we found was about 61% of uh, Gen Y and about 63% of Gen Z kind of say that, hey, social isolation is something that we're feeling, loneliness is something that we're feeling. So I think it's a looming mental health crisis for us on how do we tackle that proactively. But on the flip side of that, I think one of the cures or the antidotes is going to be in real life experiences. Because I think 63% of both Gen Y and Gen Z for us tell us that, hey, we want to go out and experience in real life. And we think it's going to have a meaningful impact on reducing our amount of social isolation or loneliness that we feel. So I think the antidote is why we are here partly. Yeah, there's some really interesting data that's come out even for adolescents that it's not just social media. It's easy to like blame screens and social media, but that they're actually reaching adolescents at a younger age. So Max Richter, New York Times journalist, did a lot of studies where like, you know, from 2000 to 2007, suicide rates were basically stable. But from 2007 to 2018, they increased 60 percent. Same with depression and loneliness. And um, not to go too dark there, but, um, you know, I think um, in terms of what actually makes that, if, if, if you are reaching adolescence at a lower, at a younger age, excuse me, um, it's actually a neurological mismatch for your brain to actually process all the information that you are getting. So it's not just social media, but it's the, you know, advancement of technology and every single piece of information at your fingertips and your brain is not able to process it. So getting out there and, and combating that loneliness by creating a sense of belonging IRL and by 
figuring out who your people are is, is it's more it's more needed than ever and it's funny we were all talking this morning about how you know preparing for this panel almost almost feels like we all went to the university of no duh because we're like oh yeah we should all do things in real life but i think more and more particularly in older generations we're going to need to become evangelists of irl i mean we're probably going to be old people at some point saying you really just need to get out of your pod you know and go outside um but truly, this is... Get off the metaverse. Get, <laughs> get out of the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to, to, to really think about how we're all trying to figure out how to get people to use their bodies and go go places, but it's it's needed more than ever. Uh, I mean, well, if you have... There's no minimum age, right? There's no minimum age. So no. I'm sure you have a lot of kids come in. There's a ton of kids. And how do you see kids experiencing experiencing that compared to, you know, adults, compared to older folks? Yeah, I mean, it's really fun, actually, to watch the multi-generational fa families because we like to say Miao takes the kid out of the adult and the adult out of the kid. Um, you know, the kids actually feel safe. There's like, an accessible space. You know, it's like you start in a house and you know what a house is. It's accessible. You're, 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 you're comfortable here. And then you open the fridge and the fridge is a portal to a new world. And you as a child say, I feel safe and I'm going to run through this portal. Um, so, you know, you feel kind of like you, you actually have that, that, you know, authority and that agency to do that. Um, same thing happens with the adults on another angle. They actually are able to kind of take all that they've known and they're all, all their social constructs and kind of throw them out the window and become a child again. I'm even crouching down and getting in a dryer and sliding down and seeing things at this eye level allows for them to play and, and create that sense of wonder. So it's really fun to see kind of how they, they play with it one another. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Vivek, how does your organization use technology? I mean, you're a tech company, right? We're a tech company. You're a tech company, really. Okay. <laughs> We're all tech-enabled, let's put it that way. Yeah. Like, how do we each use technology and think about um, technology? We're not going to talk too much about the metaverse today. We, we decided we're not going to talk about the pandemic. We're, just we're not going to talk say, about the metaverse. We'll but say we've the already, words we've already once said or both. twice. We've already said both those words. That's so, it. Uh, how, how, do you, how do we think about using technology to amplify, to scale, to make experiences better? Yeah, I think uh, for us, given the scale at which we operate... I think technology, we are a technology company. And I think we think about how do we serve the needs of an entrepreneur hosting their first event or the entrepreneur that's very successful that's hosting that 10,000th event, right? And is holding hundreds of thousands of events a year. So we got to be able to, in a self-service manner, scale beyond or between those two. I think the second thing we look at is, uh, you know, I joke about this, but I mean, we've got a few hundred engineers in Eventbrite because we're a technology company. But most of the entrepreneurs that we serve don't have those kind of technology teams, right? And they're being bombarded with solutions. If you think about like every tech company out there or every solution that's out there, they're entrepreneurs that want to create events. That's their passion. They're not CTOs like me, or they're not chief marketing officers, or they're not, you know, 20 different roles. And there's typically a mom and pop shop that are wearing 20 different hats. So how do you make things really simple for them, right? Where they don't need to be a marketing expert to grow their audience. They don't, that's that's the, the journey that we are on. And what we have found is going beyond core ticketing, which we do really well globally, but sort of becoming like that two-sided marketplace, giving them marketing tools, giving them financial tools, giving them audience growth tools, and doing that with as few clicks as possible is working out pretty well for them and enabling them to succeed. I'll give you two examples on this. One is we launched a product called Eventbrite Boost which our creators can use with a few clicks. We launched that uh, about a year and a half back. With a few clicks, and they can do everything from sending out template, templatized emails, can send out social ads, social campaigns. And what we have seen is, with two or three clicks adopting Boost, our creators who do that see, sell about 63% more tickets than unboosted events. And that's because of a lot of the data insights that we can provide them, but also because we make it very easy for them to do that. Right? We also do something called Eventbrite Ads, which we launched last summer, already in 21 markets. But we're one of the few destinations where consumers come to us looking for, hey, I want to do something this weekend. What, what fun things do you have going on on Eventbrite? So we connect those consumers and that demand to discovering an event or a creator that they knew nothing about. So I think that's, that's something that's uh, doing very well, too. I think we talked about this earlier today, but one of the key things is in a data-rich world where you're generating tons and tons of data, I think that insight matters more than the raw data. 
and as much insight as we can give the creators to organize and grow successful businesses, but also the attendees to kind of be thrilled and delighted at finding something that they didn't know about, right? Make that magic happen. That's where we're going. Um, the other one I think we spoke about was this idea of personalized scale, mm. right? And it's going to be critically important as you think about the future of experiential uh, uh, events. Because on one hand, the entrepreneurs want to be successful. They want to scale their businesses. They want to grow their communities, right? But on the other hand, the attendees want to be treated like they're the only one attending that event, like it's meaningful to them, that it's very, very unique to them. So how do you bridge that divide of having a very scalable event where every attendee gets treated like they're the guest of honor? I think we're spending a lot of time educating both sides of our uh, two-sided marketplace on that. What are you doing, I think, Didi, on that front? Well, we uh, use technology in very small ways today. We have RFID um, cards in both our Las Vegas and Denver exhibitions, and you're able to, they're actually called boop cards, so you boop them um, in different locations and get get uh, clues for the story. Um, but we actually are trying to move into more digital layers, not the metaverse per se, but uh, we just launched a, a partnership with Mighty Coconut to do a game within their walkabout mini golf, um, which mini golf, at first I was like, mini golf. Um, but walkabout is, you know, this, this XR game that uh, allows for folks up to eight players to play this mini golf. And, and as soon as we announced it actually here at South by Southwest a few days ago, so many people came up to me and said, oh, we use that game for Zoom calls. It's actually where we hold meetings. And it kind of made me start thinking about, you know, what, without using the metaverse, but, you know, what the metaverse could be is really just a place for connection, right? I think that going back to what we're all talking about, creating those spaces where you can authentically, you know, interact with one another is really the, the place where I think technology can take these experiences and hopefully move to, to new levels. So we're, we're, we're experimenting there, but most of what we do today is really in the physical realm. Awesome. I, I also spend a lot of time thinking about how technology and data can make real life experiences better. Uh, and per Vivek's point about personalized scale, uh, we work with a little brand called Johnny Walker out in Scotland. Uh, if you like scotch, amazing experience. They just put 200 million pounds into revamping this whole experience. And we built this amazing thing with them where when you're signing up for a, a tour or a class, a tasting, uh, they ask you to take a... Um, a flavor survey. And like, do you like cinnamon or bell peppers more? Do you like smoky things like smoked paprika? Or do you, are you more a lot, do you more like citrus? And you answer a lot of these, uh, these questions and then you forget about it. When you show up, the entire experience is personalized to your flavor profile. There's like 16 different flavor profiles because some people like really peaty scotch and some people like really smooth kind of, you know, sweeter scotch that tastes like rum. Um, and so actually changing the physical experience for each type of person uh, and doing that at scale across millions and millions of people that we power, um, that's really kind of the, the vision here, I think, is how can we use technology to make people connect more with experiences that they will love more and thus measure love? Um, so uh, here's the one question where if you have to talk about the metaverse, you're allowed to. Uh, I don't recommend it, but you can, um, which is where are, what's the future of experiential, right? Experiential has is the oldest thing known to humans, right? Uh, we were banging rocks together and people would come to our rock concerts. Um, but where is it going now? Uh, you know, wh what does the experience economy look like in 10, 20, 50, 100 years? I was joking about this earlier, but I'm thinking I look forward to being in real life off planet sometime. I don't know if that'll be closer to 30 years or 50 years and whether it'll be moon or Mars. I think we said Mars, more probable. But uh, it's it's a... It's a fascinating question. I think if you look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right, beyond psychological or physiological and safety, I mean, connectedness is a core, core human requirement, right? So I don't see in real life changing or going away, but the shape and the form of that might look different, right? And I think uh, we were talking about this. What I'll say on the metaverse is I've been a long-standing skeptic, but I'm starting to see some promise based on an event that I attended. I think it was a CTO summit in December of last year. And I think there might be a limited application for that in things like conferences or business conferences or kind of better options than Zoom potentially. Because there are some social cues that we take, you know, like just the fact that if one of you asks us a question eventually, and I remember your question, 
part of why I remember it is because of the spatial awareness of saying, oh, the mic was there in that room and you stood up and you were kind of wearing these kind of clothes. That's how our memories are made. It's very hard to do that in Zoom when it's a 2D kind of set of tiles, right? Because in the metaverse, what worked for me was, but uh, I said, oh, this could be something is we were all in a spatial room and I could tap somebody on the shoulder or walk over to like a fireplace and have a conversation. When we sat, we were sitting on a circular table or a kind of rectangular table. And I could remember, oh, this person said something, but they were kind of on the right by the plant. I think spatial clues is something that the metaverse can give us. It's not as good as in real life, but it could be a good substitute. So for things like conferences or, I mean, workplace-like conferences, I could see some application. We were actually just talking earlier today. How many of you actually think that we will all uh, we will have VR sets in our in our house in your lifetime. Like, how many people think that we'll spend? Okay, so a, a lot of people. Can, can I ask a follow up question? <laughs> Raise your hand if you have a VR headset. Wow. Okay. Raise your hand if. Keep your hands up, please. <laughs> uh, keep your hand up if you used it yesterday. Okay. Ooh. Two daily active users. Right. Like, so VR headsets are there. I'm, I'm a skeptic. If you haven't noticed. Uh, we have two people in the entire room who used their, their headsets yesterday. So that's, to me, I, I think I know what you're going to say. I was just going to say, if you were the same person when, when cell phones came out and you said, I'll never own a cell phone, raise your hand. <laughs> no. No, but it's like having, it's like everyone has a cell phone, but nobody touches it because it's useless. Maybe at this point. I, I don't know. technology, I think it's, it's going to find. It's, I mean, uh, one thing I would say is, even in real life, if you look at it, right, think about how things have changed between how do you organize, produce an event, how do you use technology during the event, right? Whether it's slideshows or kind of something else. I think I think there's a place for it, but I 200% agree that it's not going to take over in real life, right? It's going to find a way to make them better or be a good ancillary, but not replace. I mean, you were saying your experience with that, that meeting, you were able to look around and know where the voice was coming from that was sharing information for you. Whereas in Zoom, you know, you're looking at the Brady Bunch squares saying, wait, who said what? You know, you're not going to remember that. Um, I think something as visceral as that is going to change our behaviors. I don't know if we're there yet, um, but... <laughs> and, and as a skeptic going in, just for me, what I would say is uh, I went into a two-hour conference and three and a half hours later, I realized that I was late for three meetings. So there's got to be something there that can attract <laughs> you and keep you for that long. Are we, are we going to see, uh, like, a virtual reality Meow Wolf at some point? Well, the mini golf game is going to be uh, a, replica, uh, a replica of a uh, plus illustration of our world in Denver called Numina, which is the big swampland. Um, so that's our first foray into, into VR. Um, but, yeah, no, I, it remains to be seen kind of what layers of technology we're going to be layering on. I would like to get to a place where you can call your mom and take her to Meow Wolf. You, you will. She might still be at home, though. And you can, you can be saying things with her there. So we'll see. But I think the more that we can, back to your question about the future, create more ways for all of us to have these pers perspective shifts together in turn then will help create more creativity to then hopefully keep us, you know, humans alive on this earth and, and creating more in a more healthy way. So we'll see what technology does for that. Awesome. Yeah, I, my, my view is I think in the future uh, we're going to buy a lot less stuff. <laughs> I think we don't need more stuff, right? Uh, we see partnership declining. We all have a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that every organization that's going to be around is going to actually pivot to become an experiential company. Um, and I think that the most successful ones already are, right? Like Meow Wolf probably could not have existed 100 years ago. Um, and maybe, and if it was, it might have been, you know, just a like a clothing store that, you know, like a merch shop that might have had experiences, and now it's an experiential first organization. Um, and we're seeing more and more of organizations that say, we need to be experienced first, and we can sell goods, we can sell merch. I love my Meow Wolf hoodie. Uh, but... Really, it's about like identifying as an experiential organization, and I think the world needs more experiences and does not need more things. Um, so we're gonna have one last question, and then we're gonna open it up for questions. So if you have any questions, we'd love to to bring you up to the microphone in the middle. But I'd like to finish this uh, with, on a personal level, uh, what's an experience uh, that has totally changed your life, um, and uh, yeah. Uh, there's a recency bias on this one, too, I think, mostly. But I, I think, for me, I can vividly remember 
the Penguins winning the Stanley Cup in San Jose Game 6. And I was there with my wife and my three boys who were young at that time. And I think that experience just was so much fun, but it also got my boys really hooked to sports. Uh, it was a shared passion of ours. I think uh, following up on that, I've got three boys. They all play, I mean, one's off in college, one's in high school, and they play Texas high school football, which is a religion for us. And I think just kind of seeing them grow and kind of Friday night lights in Texas is just a whole different experience, right? But I can trace the roots of that back to that shared experience that we had at the Stanley Cup. That's cool. The same uh, psychologist, uh, Dr. Martha Newsom, who did the 4Ds, actually has a lot of studies on sports and how people that experience those sports, uh, you know, experiences together get to not only um, feel more protective of one another, but those bonds go very deep. So that's really cool. Um, for me, I think uh, maybe moving to a country where I didn't know the culture or the language. So, you know, really humbled me to know how well, be reminded of how little I knew every single day, and I lived there for two and a half years. But, um, you know, it, time slows down when everything is so different for you. And I think that's something to remember. If, if, you're, if your life ever feels really fast, change everything about it. Um, so, yeah, that was, what about for you? Uh, I also went to the DD school of finding yourself. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I bought a one-way ticket when I was 21 to the middle of the Amazon rainforest uh, and spent two and a half years just backpacking around South America hitchhiking, sleeping on beaches, climbing mountains and learning languages. And I learned more about myself and, and the world from that time than anything else that I've ever done. So um, amazing. Thank you. I, let's, let's open this up to questions. You can ask questions to the whole group uh, or to any specific person. Just jump up there. Hi. Well, for me, South by Southwest is being a great experience. I have in learning a lot. But as you said, I question myself, how can this experience can be measured? Like, nobody is asking me if I am learning, I'm just knowing it, but how do you think they are doing it? Like the measure of the, um, if it is a great experience for all of us. Uh, I'll, I'll take a guess here. I don't work for South by Southwest, so this is, I'm just making this up. I think they'll probably want to see if you come back next year. I think they'll want to see engagement, right? How many sessions do you come to? What sessions do you come to? Uh, are these sessions that uh, they probably know where you work? So is it sessions that have to do with uh, something you're interested in uh, on, a, on a work level? Or are these things that you're just passionate about? Um, they'll probably ask you for feedback. And you'll probably not take that survey because surveys have a 2% response rate. Um, and uh, Yeah. And I think it's a, like when you checked in with your badge, right, they're kind of seeing what kind of events you're going through. And I think the fact that we are here, they have a signal that said that the people wanted to participate in this kind of a topic. And if you do a really bad job or bomb it, we're not going to be back here next year. So, so I think that's, a, that's the kind of the quality of the, on both sides of it, right? For yourself, personally, I think sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves, expecting one event to magically change our life. It does. There are examples of that. But I think the osmosis of meeting people, connections, and the time frame over which it plays out is different. It may not happen the same day. It may not happen in a week. But it's possible three or five years from now, you kind of go into LinkedIn or somewhere, and you're like, oh, I met this person at South by Southwest. I'm looking for my next thing to do. And before you know it, that connection pays off, right? So I think every experience, at least for me, is from my first startup to the large public company. It all seems like paths magically connect when you need them to connect. But when you go back in time and look at it, you actually sowed those seeds without even knowing it like a decade ago. Okay, thank you. Good question. Yeah. Hi, I have a couple questions, but there should be short answers. Um, first, when is the Dallas location opening? This summer. Awesome. And I can tell you not too early and not too late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and where did Meow Wolf, the name, come from? Great question. A favorite one. Um, it was actually a group, it was a collective of artists um, back in 2008, and they all put words in a hat, and they pulled out two words. <laughs> and they all didn't know if that was actually going to be it, but it stuck. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Follow-up question. What is the sign language for Meow Wolf? Now we're putting it in a spot. Spell it. Spell it. Okay. Oh, we should, ah. we should come up with one. That's awesome. Thank you. 
And then last question, um, I'm a UX researcher and I do a lot of workshops remotely online with stakeholders. And maybe if you have some, do you have any tips to build a connection before we actually go into um, ideation and, and thinking and brainstorming? That might bring us a little bit closer together on the same page. Make people dance together. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I am going to steal that. <laughs> I left for sure. It was her idea. Uh, that was, by the way, the World Experience Organization tipped me off to that dance step. Um, I, I mean, open to all of us. I, you know, I think if anything, trying to find places where you are more physical, where you're able to, you know, connect in in a deeper way. Um, I don't know if there's more personal things that you can do, more personal information sharing, but anything that kind of gets you out of your, you know, your your persona of of being a learner, your persona of being in in your workshop could could be a good way to to break down those barriers. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you guys. Hi, um, I have a question from the agency side. Uh, I am a founder and um, CEO of an agency out in Los Angeles, and we do a lot of experiential marketing. And I'm finding it very hard continuously to prove case on the CPM versus cost per experience metric. And what we end up doing now, and I think the industry as a whole ends up doing, is finding ways to have KPIs that are around earned value, whether it's press or UGC or things like that. But it's very hard to argue cost per person or cost per experience because the overhead is so high. Is there or ever will be a cost per experience that is like industry standard for us to be able to prove case? Because we all know that the residual brand message from an experience is so much more powerful. But, but depending on the product, the, the conversion rate or time to purchase funnel is longer or shorter. And so it makes it very hard to prove case. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that. So you're, you're totally speaking my language. So I think the agency world has gone through a huge transformation and that transformation will only start accelerating, right? So it used to be that if you run some activations or experiential marketing, at the end, you send them a reel or some pictures and some press clippings, right? And again, like same as when I was at Red Bull, like 50,000 people came and they were all smiling and like they loved it. And you're like, cool, what's that worth? Well, you know, some mag- ad week covered it. That's worth $1.5 million probably. So I think things are changing. But I think that we need to ask ourselves really what the ROI is, not from the same kind of metrics as CPM. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say you are the CMO of Lululemon. Lululemon spends $300 million per year on free yoga classes. $300 million per year on free yoga classes. They have no idea what the ROI is. So you are the CMO of Lululemon. You have $5 million right now today that you, you need to spend on marketing. You can put on Instagram, right, and have a sale, and you'll sell some more leggings. You'll definitely sell some leggings, right? And you'll have immediate uh, impact metrics on that. You'll be like, hey, I, I put in $5 million. I got out $6 million of sales. This is a positive ROI Instagram, right? On the other hand, you put $5 million into classes, right? Or you run, a, you, you put a marathon together or meditation classes, right? And suddenly it's not about selling one additional pair of pants. It's about changing lifetime value. It's about bringing people into the community that would normally buy a pair of yoga pants every quarter, but now buy two pairs of yoga pants every quarter. So if you can double somebody's quarterly spend, that's lifetime value. And you can actually measure that. You can measure how much people spend per quarter and can I increase that by 30%? And that is far more advantageous than selling one additional unit of something, right? But I th- so I think that experiential marketing is, from what we've seen, I'm happy to share this with you off, not on stage, uh, about 25 times the ROI of any digital marketing. But it's not, a, it's not one-to-one. It's not like, oh my God, I converted, I sold something. It's a matter of how do you change long-term behavior? Um, and we need to look at customer lifetime and not just one additional pair of pants or something. 
This is a great question, right? I think you asked about industry benchmarks. So just to give you an idea, I think we had about 5 million events last year across about 180 countries, sold about 284 million tickets to those events, right? So we got the scale there. And one thing that we find interesting is I think sometimes the CPM, CPC, et cetera, is interesting, but it starts off with, at least for our creators, did I sell an extra ticket? Did I sell 10 extra tickets, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one. And I think that's fairly easy to measure and kind of attribute back. But second to what Jonathan was saying, the lifetime value is immensely important. As an example, what we found with the Boost product I mentioned or with our ads is 70% plus Tickets that we sell are for free events. We make zero revenue from that, right? Yet, when we announce the Boost product or the Ads product, we find that about a quarter of the creators or organizers buying those products are actually for free events. Mm -hmm. So that's a very clear signal that ticketing is not where the value creation is happening. It might be happening on food and beverage. It might be happening with charity fundraising, et cetera. And you, it's very hard to get a whole picture of what your TAM is from that industry, if you're just looking at ticketing or if you're just looking at marketing or a very or brand marketing point of view. So, but we are working on kind of an industry benchmark, at least for ours, of saying this is what the total value looks like. And by allowing you to do marketing more effectively or kind of by allowing you to build a loyalty program more effectively, this is how we can inflect that for you, which makes it a much more meaningful conversation because it's two things. I helped you sell more tickets. Mm -hmm. And then I can tell you that with every ticket that you sold, not just the ticketing piece of it, but this is what the total lifetime value of the customer increased from X to Y. Can I ask a follow-up? Can I ask well? Sure. Very, I mean, amazing answers. So at, at Lupine, we call that the one-to-one -one and the one-to-many, right? So you have a one-to-one -one spend, and that's the immediate um, brand recall, heavy engagement, deep impact moments that are going to fuel long-term value and fuel. We call one-to-many the anchors that we put in any performance or any plan that are like influencer read to extend reach. That's either invite or amplification, um, or it's press and, you know, partnerships to broker that they cover big pieces of it. Let's say there's programming or elements attached to it. Is that the immediate Band-Aid now? Or do you, and, and, and are, are people like yourselves, I mean, it sounds like you already are, um, actively trying to find ways to expand that Band-Aid where it becomes more entrepreneurial in terms of uh, KPIs. Does that make sense? I mean, you say one-to-one -one and one-to-many, right? Yeah. Like, are you asking about is one-to-many the Band-Aid or... And that no, I'm to saying get the one-to-many is the Band-Aid, meaning we're bringing in other mediums to be able to prove case, yeah. and we're making sure that we absolutely hit them to prove case, where because the one-to-one -one spend is too high on a metric sheet. I think it really, I think my answer will be very different than Jonathan's answer, right? Because if you think about our creator base, they're mostly kind of solopreneurs or maybe a mom-and-pop shop building a business, right? More on the SMB side of the spectrum. We have really large enterprises too, but mostly on these small tenants. And for them, they're not going to look at, show me 10 Tableau reports and kind of show me footfall traffic to say, right? That's one. Second is they're just looking for, did I sell extra tickets and did you drive tickets? And today what we see is we drive about 25% of tickets on the platform, right? And that's growing over time. So clear attribution based on first-party data. As you get more sophisticated with brands where they have tons of telemetry beyond what you can offer them, then they're trying to stitch together, a, a, is what the agency is telling me real, right? And is that, how does that map in with what I'm seeing from the rest of my channels? And then what should I say you cost versus somebody else cost? But to me, it starts off with you don't even get to have that conversation until the one top one or two metrics that they care about start moving in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys. Uh, I, my background is in data. And one of the things that I always have issues with with data is that you're fundamentally looking at something historically. And so when you're talking about events, which I think are a creative uh, environment, how do you think about balancing doing things that are data-driven without just making the same event over and over? Because that's making the same event over and over? Yeah. Like, how do you identify what are the pieces that matter for future events and where we need to like, push the envelope and do new things? Yeah, I, I think it's about using data to continually optimize mm -hmm. experiences, right? I mean, in websites, we have this concept of A-B testing, right? So why not A-B test experiences, 
right? So we, we actually built an A-B testing platform, and folks are A-B testing, I, I know we were just talking about this this morning, A-B testing price points, right? People yeah. don't like free stuff generally, right? So if you, uh, if you run a brewery, and you have a brewery tour, and it's free, if you raise the price to $12, people will love it even more. <laughs> and again, you can just donate the money if you don't need the money. But the point is you can continuously test this the same way we test anything else, right? It's just a data problem. Uh, and I agree, it's not enough to have historical data. It has to be real time, right? Um, so that you can actually make those tweaks on the spot. Yeah, I can, I mean, at scale, data tells stories, right? So I think just in Austin... I think as of Saturday, we had about 600 events on our platform from March 13th to the 19th, and about 187,000 attendees planning to come to those events, right? And that's just one city for a week. Uh, and the data does give you insights of what's happening. Like uh, two themes that we've seen emerge, I think sober events or kind of post-pandemic, folks started getting on this wellness, fitness um, routine. And they seem to be sticking with that. Like, we've seen the number of uh, sober events, no alcohol served, go up 50% year over year in 2022. Attendance to them has grown by 91%, right? Nostalgia is another one that uh, folks, like a lot of folks like uh, Gen Z, Gen Y, are trying things like knitting, sewing, classes. And then I'm guilty of this myself, kind of going back into nostalgic things. Dating seems to be coming back as we meet in real life. I mean, there were 11,000 events on Eventbrite last week that, or last week that were all about single or dating or kind of speed dating. So to your question, I think what happens is we take these trends and we actually give it back to our creators and saying, hey, these are the categories that are doing well. And if you are even thinking about going in, kind of go in and kind of think about holding an event. The second that you're talking about is a very important one, which is how do you make sure that you don't make them boring? Right, And there, I think there are tips that we see too, depending on if you're organizing an event every week or every month. Like, what do you change about them? Do you make some of them costume? Do you kind of partner with other creators? Because that, when I said surprise is one of the key elements of what makes a good event, that's partly solving for it too. Yeah, reinvention is a huge, huge part of Meowulf as well. We, we design spaces to have anchor spaces that are larger and then flex spaces around so new artists can come in. And if you live in one of those towns and are, you know, bringing your, your friends and family at all times, you too have a different experience every single time. So you didn't just get the selfie, right? You actually are, are learning more with every experience. So, thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Just have a couple more minutes. Yeah, thank you. My name's Ryan. Um, I put on events here in town, art and culture events. And I'm curious about, have you thought any feedback about pricing, uh, thinking of trying to include many people have different interests and I've seen more sliding scale events, but also with Meow Wolf, have you done anything intentionally with pricing in that model to just include different communities, more communities? Thank you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. We're always experimenting with pricing. Um, right now we have, you know, prices that are available for people that are local to the areas. So those are a different price. Um, we also, we're a B Corp, so community building and social responsibility is one of our pillars. And so we give away a lot of um, tickets to different communities, particularly communities that have potentially already been, you know, priced out to begin with. So there's that sliding scale, but then also, you know, flex times in terms of peak seasons and non-peak seasons. So particularly locals can come in at a, at a lower rate during those non-peak times. Um, yeah, and, and it's still new. I mean, we're, we've only been around for about seven years, so we're, we're trying to figure out the best ways to get as many people in as possible. Thank you. And how about from the data standpoint for someone who's doing their first event, what are your recommendations about? about yes, yeah, so actually, event? we've got this uh, tool on Eventbrite when you go in um, and uh, organizing your first event. Like, um, for the first time, we intentionally don't give out too much pricing advice. Because you know who your demographic is, and we don't want to kind of go and make an assumption on that. But what we do tell you is a little bit about how do you want to think about marketing your event. We kind of show a sales curve for your event, depending on what category that you picked. We kind of make recommendations on how to write your event descriptions, how to think about what images to put out there, what tags to pick. But once you've organized three or four or five events, we kind of come to you and say, hey, your pricing seems to be about on point or a little bit lower or higher than what the average for that vertical is. Thank you. Gosh, do I get to be the last question? If it's super quick. Yeah. Okay. It's not, but okay. Uh, 
I think post-pandemic especially, and also generationally, people, we all have more trouble connecting in real life. I don't know if any of you have been to a networking event and been like, I haven't talked to anyone and I'm supposed <laughs> to be networking, or you come here and you're like, I met no one. Like, how have you guys seen, or do you have suggestions as we run events to help people connect to each other face-to-face? -face? Because it's easy to go to a bar and just hang out on your phone. You know, we used to go to a bar and like have to talk to someone. I'm just curious, your POV on that. One word answers, because we're at time. Eye contact, keep it constant. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give yourself any goals. Yeah, I guess I was wondering from your perspective, like when you run an event, like what do you suggest to people? Is that what you tell people? Like make everybody look at each other <laughs> or like what, you know, or how you run an event to help people connect? I mean, I think always have an activity that people can do with one another. Um, even if you have it in a bar, make, make have a game, have you know a station somewhere where you're even picking up something and having to talk to someone else who happens to be picking that thing up and figure out what it is. And I don't know, gamifying things and, and making activities has always been a, a good way to keep those those events that are scary um, going. But or you can just be the person that says, "I don't, I forgot how to talk to everybody here." Everyone, thank you so much yeah, for joining thank us. Thank you, Vivek and Didi. Thank Jonathan. Yeah, thank you so thanks, much. Didi. Thanks, Vivek. Thanks, Jonathan. Hope you connect with other people who are wearing this thank all over all. Austin. Yes, you're all connected forever.